Uh, today's scripture will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. New Hope, it is a privilege and an honor and a joy to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I, my family and myself and our church absolutely loves your church. We are so very grateful for you. We, we love the spiritual fellowship that we enjoy in Christ together. I love your elders. I love their friendship. I admire their walks with the Lord. Uh, and to me, it's, it's almost like being at a second home and a second family uh, being here with you. It's a joy to be here. Uh, we are so grateful for you. Um, and this morning, or this afternoon, I'm so used to it, I, I, I preach this morning, so you'll grant me some grace. This afternoon, uh, I want to think about life in the body together. That passage we read is a passage that perhaps comes in one of the more well-known sections of Scripture. Uh, and so I ask you to turn and keep your Bible open in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a passage where I have one main idea that I want to to convey and that I hope is of encouragement and possibly of further nurturing and maturing in Christ. It's one main idea from this passage. Living a life that is intentionally dedicated to building up and being life-giving to other believers is not an optional thing for the Christian because we are in Christ. So one anothering, good, joyful, helpful one anothering is not optional for the Christian. That's my main point, and I'm going to unpack it in three points. But first, I want to start by talking to you about what I think might be a common occurrence in most of our lives. I don't know if you've ever received a text where you got this text, and it was inviting you maybe to lunch after church, or it was inviting you to dinner somewhere, and you saw the text, but you didn't want to press, like, open on the text, because if you press open on the text, it would also possibly send a little red receipt uh, that most of our phones do automatically. Because, because the reason you didn't want to do that is you did not want to commit yourself to this particular engagement with this particular group of people in case that something else came along that was just a little bit better. You ever been there? Because we live in a day where we love to keep our options open. We live in a keep-our-options-open culture, actually. And I think that we interact with the church in this very same way. We relate to the church with a keep-our-options-open kind of posture. So that we say with the church, you know, I, I have my faith with Jesus. I have my relationship with God. But it's something that is purely between me and God. It's not something that I have to, you know, worry too much about how it relates to other people. Like, other people do not have a space or an authority or a place in my life. And so, so we like to keep our faith purely, very much individualistic and separate which often means that we, late, we relate to the church like we relate to a YMCA. I can join by subscription and I can just as easily cancel my subscription. You know, expressive individualism 
is the spirit of our age. And it is oftentimes the things that we can allow to mark and to shape the way we walk out our Christian life. Let let me read to you a definition of expressive individualism by an author that I think is actually quite helpful. And the reason I want to read it to you is because what I want to do is destroy this. Okay, I want to destroy this in us. But, but, but hear this definition. It says, it says that the term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights, and it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. So often we drink of this kind of spirit where my authentic self and me and me only is the way we relate to other people. But the point of this passage is that living, life-giving, like Christ-centered, one-anothering, spirit-filled relationships in the context of the local church is not optional for the Christian. And first, it is not optional for the Christian because we are in Christ. I want you to notice what the passage says. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, it says, so it is with Christ. So what's the Apostle Paul doing in this passage? He's drawing an illustration from the human body to make a spiritual point about Christ and the church. He he says that, The human body has many different parts. You can have arms, you can have a brain, you can have a nose, you can have eyes, uh, but each individual part consists of and uh, ultimately plays a part in the entirety of the bigger part, the body itself. And so, for example, in our day, there's something worthwhile and meaningful about the individual parts, right? Like, Like you can dedicate your life to studying just the brain, and, and people do this. People give hours and years of their life just to try and understand one part of the human body, just the brain. And it's actually worthwhile doing this. As a matter of fact, we hardly understand how our brains actually work. And it's just one part of our human body. And it's good and right. And there's, there's a value in the individuality of that part of the body. Nevertheless, it's not something that it's separate from the entirety of the organism, which is the entirety of the body. And so he's saying there's nothing wrong with the individuality of that, but you must understand it in its larger role, in the reality that it plays a part in a larger organism. But the powerful statement, the one that ought to change drastically how we think about our Christianity and the local church is what he says at the end of that verse. He says, for just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, he says, so it is with Christ. His point is that Jesus Christ, when one is united to Jesus Christ, 
When you believed in Jesus and you repented of your sin and you trusted in Jesus for the salvation of your souls, when you understood the gospel and and you were able to sing like we just sang, Jesus, thank you because of your individual faith in Christ and salvation in Christ, you got united to Jesus and invariably and inseparably united to one another because his body is one. A person who is united to Jesus cannot be separated from his people because when you got united to Jesus, you became one with his people as well. It's an important point. It's a drastic point. It's a point that ultimately does away with expressive individualism in our understanding of our Christian faith. Because you cannot have Jesus and not have his people. You cannot have Jesus and not be inseparably united to the rest of his body. As a matter of fact, the scriptures over and over again make this very important point that the evidence of your faith is connected to the quality of relationships you live with other believers in the local body. Over and over again. As a matter of fact, you can't find a single New Testament book or letter that doesn't have some implication for how you live in the context of the local church. It's, it's, the entirety of the New Testament has implications for how you live in the midst of relationships with other people. And the basic idea is your relationship with God, the quality of your relationship with God is displayed in your relationship with other people, specifically in the body. So for example, 1 John 3.14, and I invite you to turn there with me. 1 John 3.14 uh, makes this very, very poignant point. It, ma- it makes a point that it's almost like, like he, he, he leaves little gray room here. So 1 John 3.14, and you know, uh, at FCC, I ask folks to give me an amen once you're there so that I know that we can read this collectively. And so if you'll just join in with me in that, that would be a gracious act of kindness toward me. So amen, uh, 1 John 3.14? Amen. It says... We know that we have passed out of life, I mean, out of death and into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We know you can have assurance of your own salvation. Why? Why? Because because the evidence of that, the evidence of God having given life that comes through faith in Christ is that you begin to love the brothers. Now, this is not, and I'll make this point later, it's not, he's using the word brothers to talk about the church, like the people of God, others also united to Jesus Christ. The idea is you have been made alive in Christ, then you love the rest of the body. It is not optional because we are in Christ. And every time we are in Christ, we are to love his people. It reveals that we are united to Christ. And, and, and in our day, we struggle to, extend the, to understand the extent to which Jesus relates to his people. Because we, it, is, it is common for us to think of Jesus and the church as two separate things. Like we, we can say, I like Jesus. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus I love. I want to follow Jesus. It's the church that I'm like, eh, I'm not so interested so much in. You know, you, you, I have conversations with people who will say, listen, I'm good with God. I enjoy a relationship with God at home. You know, I, I watch sermons online. I hear worship music. Like, like I just don't want to deal with the hypocrisy of people at church, you know, or the snobby nose of people at church that are looking down on me. And, you know, like, I just don't want to have to deal with them. But Jesus, me and him are good, you know. Like, have you ever interacted with this kind of thought or maybe wrestled with it? Like, like this is very common in our day. We're, we're used to separating Jesus and his people. But, but I want you to hear how Jesus talks about his people in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. It's a moment in that instance where, where Paul is on his way to go persecute Christians, and, and Jesus comes to him and meets him, and it's when he gets saved. But, but hear how Jesus speaks to him about his people. Acts chapter 9, now read verses 4 through 6. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. When you read that passage, I think you should be asking yourself, when did Paul grab a hold of Jesus? Like, when was the moment where Paul grabbed Jesus and put him in jail? Where was the moment when Paul grabbed Jesus and beat him and stripped him and, and, and treated him illy? Like, when was the moment when Paul grabbed Jesus himself and abused him and cursed him to his face and, and approved of his killing? Like, that never happened. Like, Jesus at this moment is on the throne reigning over the authority and everything and every cosmos after his death and resurrection. And yet he says, you're persecuting me when he grabs Christians and puts them in jail, and when he approves of putting them into death. My point is that Jesus so distinctly recognizes and associates the church as his people and his very body, that to hurt his people is to hurt him. That's deeply comforting. Let me just, like, just as an aside, this is not even the point of my sermon, like, that's deeply comforting as a Christian, isn't it? That Jesus so identifies with your suffering that for, for, for someone to oppose the people of God is for someone to oppose Jesus himself. But the point is, we can't separate the people of God and Jesus because the Bible doesn't do that. Because, because to be united to Jesus is actually to be united to his people. This is why it is not optional to be in the local church and it is not optional to be committed in the local church and it is not optional to live a life of like love and nourishment to others in the local church because if you are in Christ, you are inseparably a part of his people. We're called to love one another as evidence of our love to God, of the reality that we have been loved by God and now we're learning to live new relationships with one another. We are, we are called to share that love with one another, to be Christ-like in our love for one another. Um, when I was in college, I read this very interesting story. It's called The Nose by Nikolai Gogol. And uh, in it, uh, he describes what seems very comedic. It's, it's the nose, it's a, it's a nose of a man that separates itself from the, the body of the man and then begins to kind of like outpace him in his career. Like eventually this nose becomes his boss 
and you know, and like he has to answer to it, and 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 the nose develops a life of its own. Uh, and, and you're kind of reading it. I'm reading it in college. Like this is comical. Like what in the what's the point of reading this? Like you know, but it's satirical, right? He's making a particular point, and and and. And the Christian that is separate from the body looks like a nose walking around trying to live a life of its own. Like, it, it just, it doesn't make sense scripturally. It's not something that we can actually comprehend in the context of the New Testament. It, it's not something understandable from a perspective of Christ. Because if you're in Jesus, you're also united to his people. That's my one basic first point. It's not optional because we are united to Jesus. Second point, it's not optional because we have enjoyed and got in the same way. Did you notice in the passage in 1 Corinthians, he not only tells us that we have uh, been, uh, we are in Christ, but he also says uh, that we have been baptized by the same Spirit, that, that we have shared in the baptism of the Spirit. He says, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body so that every Christian later he says was made to drink of one spirit the 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 reality of this passage is that you cannot find a Christian who has not also been baptized by the spirit if you if you are in Christ you have also enjoyed the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this happens we understand in the scriptures at the moment of conversion when you trusted in Jesus God made you alive and 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 you were baptized by the Holy Spirit and and that means that the the covenant promises to Abraham were applied to you. God is now in a covenant relationship with you. It it means that you were washed with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, that God made your life when you were dead in your sins, that that God himself, not like a force, we're so accustomed to thinking of the Spirit as this like, you know, inanimate sort of energy, but that's not the Spirit of the Bible, where it's God himself personal, the third person of this trinity, like God himself has come to dwell in each and every single individual believer as he dwelt, his glory dwelt in the temple. Having been justified by faith, we, we, have, we have now been made uh, like pure enough for that to occur. And, and there's a reality that every Christian has been baptized by the Spirit, that we all have enjoyed that. And you know, that means that every Christian you see and interact with has participated in this, this shared moment of collective healing. Like we think about in our day, the idea of collective trauma. That's like a language that now has kind of permeated some of our language and our understanding. And like, and like you know, I don't know how, it, I'm not trying to be divisive with my next statement, but like, COVID, however you, thought you, however you think about the dynamics of COVID, is the kind of thing that 50 years from now, we will all look at each other and be like, you remember that? Like, they didn't know what it was to live through that, right? Like, that was something. That, well, however you feel about it, that's not the point I'm trying to make. All I'm trying to say is there's a collective trauma in the experience that we all just walked through of, like, what in the world just happened? Like, like right? And, 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 and that shares, that makes you almost, like, share something together, right? It's like, you know what it is to walk through that. It, it's the same idea that, that, athletes who compete together in a team and accomplish something like winning a championship they talk about hey we're brothers for life because that's my brother that I want a championship with right there's a sense in which the sharing of a particular moment becomes something that bonds you so deeply well what it means to be a Christian is that every person you look to in the context of your local body who truly has been saved and is a member of the church you can be like I've experienced the same collective healing 
the Holy Spirit has come and indwelt both of us. C.S. Lewis once talked about the reality that the most mundane, weakest, least impressive Christian you'll see today, like the person that you're most like, man, that person needs to grow. Like, you know, like that person. He said that one day when they are perfected and glorified, you'll be tempted to worship them. Not because we are made gods, but because of God's Holy Spirit indwelling us will have done away with all of the realities of sin to such an extent. I think it ought to make us reverent with how we interact with one another. A sense of, this is God's child. Like, this one belongs to God. This is an heir of grace. There should be a a desire and a commitment and a humility to build one another up in light of that. You know, you don't get to share who your siblings are. You get to participate in the family. And that's the reality that we have in Christ. That we didn't, share, we didn't choose who our brothers and sisters would be. We just all were orphans adopted by the same king. That we got brought into relationship with one another because we got brought into relationship with Christ. Having experienced the baptism of the spirit. Now let me say a quick word towards spiritual gifts. In this sermon, I'm not trying to touch upon spiritual gifts, like the details of it. But in my experience, people really want to talk about two things in the church. Revelations and what in the world is happening with dragons and other interesting stuff. What is happening with spiritual gifts and how much of it is active and not active. Like those are the two things that people really are interested to talk about. But, but, but if you notice, in the context of the passage... Spiritual gifts have a particular purpose. It says that every person in Christ confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. And then he says that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each as the Lord, as the Spirit desires. To some uh, utterances of wisdom or, 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 or knowledge uh, or, or administration and acts of service or prophecy or teaching. That, that all of these manifestations, various activities and various gifts are given throughout the body. That, that, that there are some people uh, who are really good, like Solomon, at organizing things and at just administrating things. And, you know, and for people like me, we just say, like, praise the Lord for them because they're just such a gift, right? And, and then there are others whose life is just full of wisdom. Like, yeah, they, they can just speak a word of wisdom to you. And like, how do they know, right? And, and, and there are others who are knowledge. You can parse Greek and Hebrew and tell you the minuteness and guard the church from false doctrine, right? And there are others who just understand needs. And so they jump to serve with an other-centeredness, and they're empowered by the Spirit. There are others who have been given much, and, and they joyfully, with generosity, can have acts of service and of gifts, right? Those are all manifestations of the Spirit. The idea is that that's how you see God at work empowering in others. But what's the goal? What's the point? That's for the common good, for the building up of the body. It's not for flaunting and being like, I'm good at this or that. The whole goal is that the body would be like a self-healing organism. You know, my kids, every time they fall, they get a scrape. They always start screaming at me, hey, can I get a Band-Aid, please? And like for every little cut, they want a Band-Aid. And I'm like, that's not even going to help. Like if you put a Band-Aid on it, it's going to make it worse. Like right now, it's not the time for a Band-Aid. But they start begging for a Band-Aid. So I began to start telling them, you know what? 
like when your body starts uh, healing and you get like um, the scabs, that's a natural band-aid that God built into your body. Like, it's a natural Band-Aid, and you don't need another Band-Aid. And, and, and they're like, oh, like, it's a, you know, my, my son gets amazed, like, wow, right? Because there's still that amazement about the human body and just about learning new things. And that's what the body's meant to be, a self-healing organism, that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, having been baptized by the Spirit, but then through the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, we would build one another up into further maturity in Christ. You know, some of us have walked through church hurt, and that's why we deal with people with a certain distance, where, where there's been pain and abuse possibly, or, or just, uh, you know, been deeply wounded and sinned against in prior experiences. And I, I don't want to make light of those. I know that that's real. But one of the things that the Lord uses to heal you from that is the very body. And by participating in the body, this self-healing organism is meant to restore what was broken and to heal the areas of pain and hurt. That's what the body's meant to be to the glory of the Lord. I, I, love, I love this quote from a little book called Life Together by Bonhoeffer, where he says, Christian brotherhood is not an idea which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Are you grateful to get to participate in the brotherhood of the saints? That it is something that it is a privilege to be a part of. In spite of the flaws and weaknesses of the people around you or the people that, that you're living life with in the context of the local church, is there not a sense of how they're failing you, but a greater sense of, I can't even believe that I'm a Christian and I'm a part of his people. When we cultivate that posture, what it does is that it removes the idol that sometimes we create, that we long that people would fill. And it instead allows us to have a posture of serving towards one another and a posture of handling one another uh, in such a way that is a gift with an open hand uh, and yet a privilege to participate in. So it is not optional because we are in Christ and it is not optional because we've been all been baptized by the Spirit so that we would build one another up and so that he would be glorified but it is not optional because it must be lived out with the real people. You know, everything I said up to this point, you can do with the big C church. Like, you can almost wiggle your way into that, where you can say things like, you know, I'm kind to every person that I meet and every Christian that I meet. You know, if I happen to be on my way and I encounter another believer, I want to see their good. And yes, I say, hey, praise the Lord for you, brother. Uh, but, 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 but you can almost wiggle your way out and be like, it doesn't mean that I have to be in one particular place with a group of particular people uh, bearing with their particular flaws and weaknesses. So, so I want to try and close that door, okay? Uh, um, you must walk that out with real people. 
Right? Notice what happens in the rest of this passage, which I didn't read, but, but he, in verses 14 through 19, begins to make the point that no part of the, of the body should, uh, should neglect and care for, and, and treat with contempt any other part of the body. Like, like the eye should not look at the feet and be like, I don't need you. Or, or the nose should not think of, you know, uh, the organs or, or some other, you know, uh, and be like, ah, you're not even really necessary. Necessary, uh, like, like that, that the body should have equal care and equal love for one another. He makes the point that we should not relate to one another with contempt. Later on, he says that we should, we should be able to um, bear each other's burdens and to cry with one another and to rejoice with one another. Now, have you ever stumbled your pinky toe, like, like just walking around and just hit it somewhere? One thing you learn very quickly is that you hardly ever think about your pinky toe. But the minute you hit that mug, every part of your body hurts. Every part of your body hurts. Like you're just like, ah! And again, you just want to everything. Every, you can't even move. You can't think. You can't act anymore at that moment because just that little part of your body is hurt. And, and that's the idea of the passage that, that when one part hurts, the other hurts. And when one rejoices, the other rejoices. And the complexity of the church is that you can have both happening at the same time in the body. You can have a wedding going on and rejoicing, a new child going on and rejoicing, and then a funeral on the other side where we're weeping and mourning with one another. And, and those are realities that can only be lived out with people whom you know the intricacies of their difficulties, the intricacies of their pains, the intricacies of their joy. Like it requires real people that you deal with consistently. Like, like, like the scripture, when it exhorts us, bear with one another. We read that in, um, in Ephesians even, right? That we should bear with one another in love and that, and that we, should, we should have a concern for one another. It requires there be somebody in the church that is hard to bear with. Like that exhortation doesn't happen unless there's somebody in the church that it's easier to have a miscommunication with. You understand what I mean? Like, like there's, there are some people... I don't even know why, right? Like it could be personality, it could be whatever. That is harder to just easily flow with great joy and delight in one another, right? Whose, whose idiosyncrasies are a little bit more annoying than others. Now the humility of the body is that we all have idiosyncrasies, okay? Like, like you may think yourself really well put together and yet you have some weird stuff, right? Like that's just the reality of the body. And, 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 and yet there is a sense in which the exhortation to bear with one another demands there be somebody in the midst of the body whom you have to bear with. It requires real human beings to live this out. It requires real people whom you know their joys and their difficulties, whom you have the opportunity to exhort or to help, to encourage, to instruct, to serve, to, to walk through misunderstandings and conflicts with, to, to build into a Christ-like, uh, more mature faith that brings great glory to the Lord in our lives. You know, in our day, the greatest apologetic we can give a watching world is our lives in which we are united and are deeply looking to love one another well. Isn't that what Jesus says in John 13 and in John 17? When he prays, for the disciples in John 17, he says, I pray for those that will believe through their proclamation that they be one as you and I are one. 
He prays that the disciples would be known by their love for one another. Then he, he ties this other phrase in those passages where he says, in this way the, no, the world will know that I came from you. What that means is the world has greater reason to believe that Jesus Christ is from heaven when they witness a church that is loving to one another and united. This is one of the greatest apologetics we can give to a watching world. And it undermines our gospel proclamation when they come in and see us biting and devouring one another. But perhaps the best apologetic for what I'm trying to argue for, and I think the passage calls us to, a life of deep love for one another, is what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, the very first church ever planted and ever started. The apostle Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. About 3,000 souls are saved that day. And then in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, we read that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And it says that they shared their possessions and they were glad and inviting each other to their homes. Now, what's striking about that is that many of them would have come from many different countries for a temporary time to participate in a worship uh, that the Jews would have been participating in the Passover for a season with the intention to go back to their countries. They become Christians, and they decide going back to their countries is not important anymore. Instead, they ought to devote their lives in fellowship with these new believers because they're united to Christ and to each other. And they do so with real people. They could have argued, hey, it would be better for the gospel to advance if we all went back to our home countries and all of a sudden the gospel advances. But gathering and hearing preaching and teaching and fellowship and the Lord's Supper and serving one another was of such deep importance and necessity that they prioritized the gathering together and then the sending out after to plant new churches. Friends, brothers, sisters, it is not an optional thing for the Christian to live a life-giving, Christ-exalting, deeply one-anothering lifestyle in the midst of the body. Yes, there will be times where you'll need to work through miscommunications, and there'll be times where you'll need to work through conflict. And yes, there'll be times where people will disappoint you. But for the glory of Christ, we are called to be a church that is united as one body because Christ is one body. I'd love to close in prayer that the Lord would help us to flourish in that together as a community. Father, I, I thank you because we get to participate in your people. I thank you because while we were orphans and while we were guilty and what we deserved was your judgment, you adopted us, having predestined us even before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you. And not only did you adopt us, Father, not only did you make us your own, not only did you save us by grace, not only did you make us alive, but you have also allowed us to participate in what is the display of your manifold wisdom that is the church. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives that are deeply nourishing to one another, to the glory of your name. 
We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.